evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Swansea in South Wales and with me as always is... Is Brian in Western New York, South Wales. What, 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 you're not even going Swansea, you're not pulling out the city pride? I, I, I thought I did say Swansea, I thought I said Swansea in South Wales. Oh yeah, well maybe I missed it. Well this is Brian in Buffalo. Western New York. How are you, Lauren? I'm very good, thank you. I hear you've been slightly under the weather. Well, if by slightly you mean I slept like 72 straight hours, uh, yeah. What, without even getting up? Well, no, I got up to like take my medicine, my, my insulin, and, uh, you know, to, um, <clears throat> to uh, you know, take care of other business. Which would have been much easier with the bathroom buddy, I'll tell you, but. I'm going to let that one slide because you've not been very well at all. No, but I'm uh, I'm here. I got out of my sick bed to record because I'm so excited about tonight's show. I was not going to let illness put this on the back burner. And plus, I missed you, Lauren. I wanted to talk to you. Uh-huh. How are you? I'm good. I'm curious to know. Did we hear back from Caitlin's dad? Uh, I have not checked that email box in a few days because I've been pretty sick. Ah. So I dropped the ball on that one. That's my fault. That's okay. We can find out by next episode. But you know who I did hear from today? Jeremy? I was talking to our dear friend Jeremy, who is right now in London at Fright Fest, where Scare Package 2 premiered. And if all you listening out there realize out, you know, we had the the, the, the ultimate Scare Package 2 show with uh, Byron Brown and Jeremy and Han and you know, Jeremy's there in full leg cast because, you know, he shattered his, like, foot and leg. How is he getting on with that? Because I know that they were eager for me to take them on a tour of the East End, but I don't think that could have happened with Jeremy's leg in a full cast. No, he's uh, he's in a full cast. Uh, I think he's getting around on a scooter. Oh, my God. No, you wouldn't have been able to do that. You wouldn't have been able to do a, 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 a repertoire on a scooter because no. the cobbles, it would have ruined the scooter. He'd have lost his, lost his deposit. He uh, apparently, wow, did this get great reviews there. Now, I have not seen this film. You have not seen this film. I- None of us have seen this film. Because it doesn't actually come out until, I believe, December. But this oh, was wow. the special sneak preview at Fright Fest. Jeremy's there living up the uh, the celebrity life, you know, being uh, being King Shit of Fuck Mountain. Although he yeah. says he's not being recognized anywhere. I don't believe him. I think that's a lie. I, I think do. that's a terrible lie. And he is. And he's just being modest. Or, you know... He's, he's worried that he's going to spot you because of the flipping cushion. I told him he should be pitching snuggle pillows in this show, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, oh, it, my God. His face made me feel weak. That, that, his face when he saw the snuggle pillow makes me wish that this podcast was a video podcast. Do you know how weak and pathetic I feel that? Jeremy shatters his leg. He falls 30 feet from a tree, shatters his leg and foot, and gets on an international flight and goes to a film festival. I get a little stomach bug, and, you know, my tummy hurts, and I sleep for four days. 
Yeah, but the, the thing is, I, I think spite is driving Jeremy. Like, he was not going to miss London. No. Speaking of stomach bugs, Lauren. Yeah. Did you know that ants don't get sick? Good fans. It's true. They have antibodies. <laughs> I walked into that one. Yeah, you did. <laughs> hey, what's a show without bad jokes, right? I know. I know. So you can't even go back about our feedback this week. You can't even say, oh, Brian did this and Lauren is amazing. Uh, well, we that's a given. We, you know, we, we, come on. Everybody knows that that's what the feedback is. Brian sucks. Lauren's amazing. Um, Jeremy should have a restraining order. Yeah, oh, I, I, I don't know. I don't think Jeremy needs a restraining order because I think you would have to fight his wife uh, for him. And, and I really don't reckon your chances. You know, I actually, I did get one bit of feedback from a listener, but it wasn't from an email. (gasps) It was from one of my book signings. Ooh, that's harsh. And a regular listener of the show showed up at the book signings. To say, please leave Jeremy King alone. Well, Karen said her favorite part of the ramblings is my jokes. <laughs> why, did this, why did this book signing take place, Brian? Was it a bar? <laughs> I just want to point out that she said she thinks, and this is maybe it's a conspiracy theory. We'll have to, like, you know, bring Tim Schwartz back on to discuss conspiracy theories, but she thinks you mute your microphone to intentionally not laugh at my jokes because she thinks they're brilliant. Do not mute my microphone. You know what I, kind of you know what kind of jokes uh, I really like. I like I communist jokes, but they're only funny if everyone gets it. <laughs> no, no more jokes. Um, Lauren, it's been a busy week. It has been a busy week. You, I see, are, like, just all kinds of crazy busy. Am I? Because I, I follow you on Facebook, and I, and I see you. Every, I can always tell you're busy when you update your profile picture, like, five times in one week. <laughs> I only did it once, and for some reason, I don't know why, Facebook, uh, Facebook um, put, it, put it up like three or four times like no I thought I thought because it'd been a month since my graduation I better change it from graduation one so as I'm oh, laying in my deathbed I, I don't know I, I kept I, getting I, these ding ding ding, ding. I decided to update your profile yeah it was it was one update but somehow there must it, there must have been like a cut in the connection because I uploaded the same picture like three times and I was like, no, I did not update the same picture three times, just once. You stupid Facebook. And I saw a Facebook post you had that said you have a free ticket to see Brian Cox. I do, yes. When is Brian Cox coming back to Swansea? He's not in Swansea, he's in Cardiff on Sunday and my mum can't make it now. 
Oh, uh, he is so... He's just wonderful. Is he doing a meet and greet afterwards or a signing or anything? No, he doesn't tend to. It's a lecture. But it's a lecture put to graphics and music. Well, here's your mission, should you choose to accept it. Yes. And get him to come on the show. Tell him that Dr. Chris Impey's been on. And, of course, the great Lawrence Krauss has been on. So he would fit right in. That was funny because we were only given, because, of course, Lawrence Krauss was very busy. So we didn't, we were quite honored that he was only able to give us 20 minutes. Please don't get us wrong. But we we talked for 40 minutes and he's quite happy to keep going. When we had Dr. Impey on. Oh, he wanted to keep going. Remember when we had Dr. Impey on and we were talking? And he told us flat out that he only had like 40 minutes, couldn't go oh, yeah. over. And then we got really close to it. So I said, oh, we're approaching that 40-minute mark. He said, ah, no, I'm going to stick around. I'm having a good time. Uh, I only had to go because I have to go deliver a video lecture. But I'm Dr. Impey. They'll wait for me. <laughs> I'm like, that's badass. Yeah, the, the only person that's had to rush off, and that was completely understandable as Took well, was Dr. Was Dr. Conneen. I love our guests. Yes, I love them too. And so, I cannot wait for tonight's guest because I'm such a fanboy. Should I unveil to the public who is coming on? Yes. Or just still hang it in the air? Okay, I'll tell. Well, tell them. There's Chris Shelton is a hero, I believe. This is a man who was you know, born and raised into Scientology. Uh, worked his way up, became like really prominent in it. And then he realized, you know, maybe I'm part of an organization I don't necessarily want to be involved in. Now, this is a story we've heard, you know, hundreds of times from people from all different uh, cults and religions and organizations. But what makes Chris so special to me is when he was finally able to get out, he dedicated his life to research and study of cults and their behavior, uh, destructive cults, uh, the patterns of the behavior uh, from a very, you know, serious educational way. And he dedicated his life to helping other people. You know, he took this experience and really turned it around, and he's done something incredibly special with it, and I'm so honored he agreed to come on. I emailed him thinking there's no way he's going to come on. Do you want to know and, something uh, crazy about Scientologists? They used to um, come to science fiction conventions. Oh, of course. In the UK. And they used to do their audits there. They used to try and get you to sit there and audit yourself while oh. you're at a convention. Chris used to do auditing, so... So I think it was the auditing one. It's like where they where you tell them about your life and they tell you what's wrong with it. Yeah. You know, Lauren, you don't need that. You could just tell me what's wrong with your life and I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Well, I think I think I did tell them once that no, that um, my lord was the Cthulhu. So sorry. Um, so, yes, they they're not allowed to attend science fiction com- conferences in the UK anymore. Um, because it was hurting a lot of people. Yeah, they've, they've put some restrictions on them a lot in the UK and in, in, in Australia and Europe. 
Not yes. so much in the United States, though. Um, I, it was more to do with the, um, the emotional damage that they were doing to people and the fact that it, that they were they they were annoying people when they went to science fiction con- uh, conferences because they were approaching people while they were queuing for their autographs ah. which means they have a captive audience but also it's annoying and um you know they're not they were never meant to be actively recruiting people they were meant to be there to give out information. So we they were seen as dangerous because they were actively recruiting people. Like, you're not meant to do that. No. Like, you, if somebody's interested in joining your religious organization, you can give them information. But you can't sort of make or, like, coerce somebody into joining your religion. So that's why they're no longer allowed to come to science fiction conventions in the UK. Because they were very pushy and quite aggressive. Not... Like, not like overtly aggressive, where they would like uh, threaten your physicality, but they could be a bit full on. And it was quite scary sometimes. Yeah, and and I'm sure, you know, we'll get into a little bit of that with Chris. But the great thing is, is he also has become an expert on the history of cults. And guess what, Lauren? We're a history show. Yes, we are. It's going to be so much fun. At least it is for me. I don't know. He might not like it. He might say... These, these people are douchebags. Well, Lauren's great and all, but Brian sucks. Yeah. Like everyone else says. But, no, I think it's going to be a great interview, and, and, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit. And I, I'm so excited to do that. But, uh, you know, we do have some business to attend to first, Lauren. We do. So you better, uh, you better clear your throat. And give me a good one. Today I was I was passable. Okay, well, what what uh, you got for me? Right. Um I have got um on the 29th of August 1526 the Battle of Mohacus, which is not something I'm very knowledgeable on and that and it's something that I am trying to remedy because the Ottoman Empire and what was going on in the east is just as fascinating. Um, as what was happening in the West in the 16th century. So um, this is the Battle of Mohacus. In a decisive battle, the Hungarian Empire is conquered by the Ottoman Empire, led by Suleiman the Magnificent. They have such magnificent names. You know, do you think they called them the Magnificent before that battle? Um, He was quite a magnificent ruler. I mean, like, I think they choose their own nicknames. Because, um... Okay, that's fucking jive. Because if you're calling yourself the Magnificent, that's like, you know, I'm Brian the Beautiful. You know, it's just wrong. You can't pick your own nickname. Well, Henry VIII did try, and I can't quite remember the nickname, but it was something along the lines of, um, like, Good King Hal, or something like Hal the Confet. It was something like medieval. He wanted to emulate a, a king or, you know, a medieval king. And I can't for the life of me remember off the top of my head. And he did want this nickname to catch off, and it didn't. Yeah, but then he, he was good at it. But then, but then he um, also applied, then he also, through, you know, self-promotion, tried to get to be um, the Holy Roman Empire Emperor, which didn't go very well for him either. So... That was funny. 
Lauren, if you were going to give yourself a, a nickname, a title, what would you call yourself? I don't know. Man. I have no idea. Lauren Yee of Tom Jones Land? No? Lauren Sick of Brian's Bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. I, I You know, I, I just... If I had to give myself one, I don't know what I would, because I would feel weird giving myself one, like, you know, Alexander the Great or, you know, Suleiman the Magnificent. I mean, the only people who should give themselves names like that are magicians. Or wrestlers. Or wrestlers. Good call, Lauren. Good call. Because, yeah, the WWE is coming to Cardiff next Saturday. Theo's very upset because he's with his dad and he wants me to take him. I don't know why he wants me to take him. He's a weird child. Um, if, there's, if, he wants, if he wants me to do something, if he wants to go somewhere, it's always me he asks. And um, he wants to go and see the wrestlers in Cardiff, but he can't. And he's very uh, upset because Drew McIntyre is going to be there, and that's one of his favorites. Oh, Drew McIntyre. Yeah, that's uh, he's a friend of Danny's. Um, oh, do you know the Welsh wrestler El Bandito? Yes. He has a daughter called Tara Bethan, and she's a Welsh singer, and she's a Welsh actress. And she has restyled herself to be called Tara Bandito. And she's been going, and there's been videos of her popping up on social media where she's been teaching them how to speak well. Good for her. She's oh, she's an amazing singer. She's she's really good. She's got a few. If you go on Spotify, um, she's got. If you put Tara Bandito in, it'll come up with her music. And it's partly it's like half in Welsh, half in English. It's really hmm. amazing. So she does sing in Welsh too. Yeah, she was. Oh, beautiful. Do you know how much feedback we got on our Christmas show when you sang in Welsh? Um, I, I kind of locked that out. That didn't happen. That was that didn't happen at all. That was so magnificent. Ha, see what I did there? But I always say that I think Welsh is a very beautiful language. And then hearing it sung was just it, it was it was fantastic. And you have a much better voice than you give yourself credit for. Everybody comments about how beautiful it was. Sarah cried when she heard. Oh gosh, I'm sorry it was that bad. Yeah, Sarah cried. Because <laughs> it was bad. Oh, she was just so moved by it. <laughs> now, I got a question. Mm-hmm. Should I go on to my day in history now? Yes. Or tell you the story of the adventure of Billy's first vet visit? I think today in history, so we can then go on and have a bit more time without the day in history hanging over us, because that sounds hilarious. All right. Well, my day in history is not the 16th century, but it is mighty magnificent. Because today in history, August 29th, 1966, the Beatles performed their last public concert un, except for the rooftop concert which was technically not a public concert that was just you know they showed up to play this was their official last public concert in candlestick park san francisco california to a crowd of twenty-five thousand people here's the weird thing lauren there were seven thousand unsold seats 
to the last Beatles concert. Wow. So there's 7,000 people that could have been at the last Beatles show and weren't. You done fucked up, people. They done fucked up. I wonder if it was something that they maybe that was a block of tickets not sold because of the way the stage was set up. I don't know, but yeah, 7,000 unsold seats for the Beatles' last official public performance today in history. All right, so now. Yes. I want to go to our guest, but I got to tell the story real quick. Okay. For our regular listeners, you know that uh, I have this new little kitten, Billy Van. He is four months old now. And he had his very first vet appointment earlier in the week. And Cleo had her vet appointment the same day. Oh, my. So they allowed us to go in as one appointment and go in together and go in the room together. And, you know, I had the two cat carriers, and I brought them in and took them out of their carriers. And they both went to opposite sides of the room because Cleo's like, you know, this sucks, dude. They're going to stick a thermometer up your butt. And they're going to, like, stick you with needles. It really sucks, kid. And Billy's, of course, running around like, this is great. I've never been here before. I don't know why he's southern, but he is. And then the technician comes in, the nurse, and both cats ran up to them and were, like, rubbing one on each leg like, I'm cuter. Look at me. I'm cuter. No, look at me. I'm cuter. They were competing for the attention and affection of the technicians in the vet. And who do you think got the attention and affection? Cleo. Yes! They actually went with the beautiful Cleo Catra over the tiny little kitten. 99 out of 100 times, you know, people are going towards the kitten. Now, this time they're like, oh, my God, look at that beautiful girl. Look at those eyebrows. She's so gorgeous. And little Billy's like, what? What the hell? I'm a baby. You're supposed to, like, goo-goo-gami and shit. But no, they went right to Cleo. Yeah, she's got the charms. Isn't that a wonderful, uh, I, I love, you know, you know how I am with my Cleo. Yep. Billy got schooled. Yeah. But, you know, Cleo had to get uh, two shots. Billy only got one. So technically Billy won. At least now, well, at least now he knows that she's not lying when she told him that they stick a thermometer up your bum and they give you shots. Yeah, I don't take him into another room now, which uh, that's a little sketchy to me. We're going to take your cat into another room while we, uh, you know, put a thermometer in him. But both of them, clean bills of health, both beautiful, both doing well. And uh, Cleo got the love and attention. So there's always that. She won the moral victory. Now, Lauren, what I'm going to do. Yes is I am going to find the interview box, and I'm going to fire it up. It's the magic interview box. All right. And again, I'm going to bring on the amazing Chris Shelton. We are just going to go down a dark path today, I think, with the history of cults. But I think it'll be a fun show. So why don't you flip the switch? Oh, Lauren. I am so excited. As you know, I've been giddy about this ever since I first got the email response, Lord. You know I've been just like <laughs> popping you up constantly talking about this. Because, again, we managed to land someone who is 
a very personal hero to me. Someone who I I watch regularly from my bedroom, which is really creepy sounding. That, you know, often I lay in bed and listen to Chris Sheldon <laughs> on the Sensibly Speaking podcast. But Chris is one of the most remarkable people I've ever come across in this crazy online religious cult world we live in. Because he came out of it and then dedicated his life to not only helping others, but studying the phenomena. And I, I just, I'm beyond thrilled. For the few people in our audience who have not heard of Chris, because Chris is way more famous than we are, Chris comes, was born and raised into this little, little organization you may have heard of called Scientology. And somewhere along the line, now remember, born and raised, it's not like he joined later in life, so this was all he knew. And yet somehow at one point realized, all right, there's something wrong here. And he managed to not only figure out what was wrong, get out, but go on to help so many others, and not just with Scientology, but cults and destructive relationships of all kinds. And I could go on for an hour with this introduction because it's been such an important figure to me in these last several years. But before I do that, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can I call you Chris? <laughs> yes, please do. Uh, your Royal Highness is, is probably inappropriate. Um, <laughs> but thank you very much for that very generous intro. I, I will hope to live up to that uh, in your show here today. I, I very much appreciate that. It, it, it's amazing. When I first uh, learned of your show was through, obviously, through the Leah Remini um, Scientology and its aftermath, which you were a consultant on and on an episode. Correct. Yeah, I got, to, I got the privilege of being on two of the episodes, and I was very, very happy to be part of that whole thing and uh, contribute my tiny little way to the to the overall effort. Speaking of a tiny little way to... Uh, help in the effort my brother did want me to say oh my god you got to sit next to leah how how, how good does she look in person <laughs> she that's my brother's great. question before we yeah go. yeah yeah no she's 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 quite good looking yeah <laughs> she is exactly this is what i tell everybody is she is she is exactly how you see her on that show that is her in real life so that yeah. makes so much cooler yeah you have got, what, 400 episodes of your podcast now? Yeah, coming up on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Q&A shows, yeah, both. And the Q&A shows are incredible, too. Because you get just the random weird questions like we do on our Q&A shows, too, which makes it so much fun. Yeah. Um, we got one last week where a child wrote it, uh, had their father write it and ask Lauren what kind of whales there are in Wales. <laughs> And you Lauren know, that's, destroyed that's this kid question. by saying there are none. <laughs> that's a very sensible question. <laughs> but you, I didn't destroy them, Brian. I did not destroy the child. <laughs> you, might have, you might have hurt them a little. No, you gave them a great explanation of where the term actually came from. Ooh, sidebar, Chris, do you know where the term whales comes from? I, I do not. Go ahead, Lauren. 
Oh, it's um, the Anglo-Saxon. It's a variation of the Anglo-Saxon word for foreigner. So oh. the foreigners in your own country. See English there, getting in their digs. Of course. <laughs> right from the start. <laughs> that destructive cult of England mm. decided to tell people in their own land that they were foreigners. That sounds about right. That's yeah. uh, that that lines up with the English history. <laughs> I mean, not that, you know, not that they're exclusive in that, but, you know. You have done so many episodes on Scientology and everything involved in it. And, I mean, I could do 100 episodes of this show with you just on that. Yeah. But there's so many other topics I want to hit upon because I have someone with your expertise here. That, But we got to, you know, got to address the elephant in the room. We got to discuss Scientology just for a little bit. Of course. Because... I'm a child of the 70s, and the most, quite possibly the most effective advertising campaign, with the exception of the Big Mac to all beef patty special sauce lettuce cheese commercial, might be the Dianetics Volcano commercial. Yes, that's true. That's true. I still see that in my sleep to this day, you know, 35, 40 years later. Sure. It, it, is it just, I know that, that they've lost a lot of their, I don't want to say power, but a lot of their um, support, a lot of their membership. Why aren't they doing ad campaigns like that anymore? I mean, that was effective stuff. Well, it was. And it was also, I guess... Miscavige considers David Miscavige, the current leader of Scientology, the guy who took it over in the 80s after Hubbard died, kind of killed that campaign and and many other efforts to promote Scientology. And there were some really competent people who existed in the 80s and 90s in Scientology when it came to promotion and marketing. And Miscavige just kind of hated them. And kind of hated the whole concept. And I don't know exactly why. I can only say that he did because it's very abundantly clear that other than a Super Bowl ad every year, the Church of Scientology engages in almost no real promotion and marketing of its product anymore. And hasn't through all the 2000s, really since the 1990s was the last real effort at any kind of international marketing campaign. And that was actually when David Miscavige's brother was still running the promotion and marketing for Scientology. He left. Everybody else who ever took over ended up getting busted off of the job. And so there kind of isn't anybody there doing that work. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the money because it costs quite a bit of money to actually do it right. Um, but whatever the reason is, Miscavige has decided that Scientology doesn't need that. It can cannibalize its existing public, as they say, uh, just rework, you know, their people over and over again. And that's what they've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I, I got to, you know, I want to give them full credit. One of the best ad campaigns in history. I mean, that's I will right. never forget that. And I, I bet there's a lot of people... Maybe it's been stuck in the back of their minds. They haven't thought of it in years. But when I mentioned it, they're like, oh, I remember that commercial. Yep. And it, and the funny thing was I actually got to interview the man who 
was kicked out of Scientology, who formulated that entire campaign, Jeff Hawkins. And he did it by trying to just do a professional, regular, normal marketing promotion job. And he was actually in touch with and liaising with major book publishers at the time and major book outlets at the time, the old B. Daltons and Walden Books and and what became uh, Barnes and Noble. You know, these these were the places where if you wanted your book to get sold, you you uh, cultivated relationships with these with these uh, companies. And he did. And he did a championship job of it. And he applied focus groups and marketing research and surveys. And, you know, quite honestly, I think that all of that kind of goes over David Miscavige's head. And I think that's uh, I think that's why we don't see that level or quality of work coming out of Scientology anymore. I was just going to ask, how do you get kicked out of Scientology? Oh, well, pissing off David Miscavige is a good way to start. And that's what Jeff Hawkins did. Uh, Many, many, many people did, actually, because it's not hard to do. Um, And he he runs a a fairly, uh, you know, kind of iron fist and not much of a velvet glove kind of operation that's that's Miscavige's thing and he he likes be, literally beating up on people and and Jeff was has told stories of how he was one of those people who was quite literally assaulted um in front of you know a whole room of people uh, a couple times by David Miscavige so it, it it doesn't really take much and his triggers are random and they are nonsensical and um, the consequences are always severe. And so people in his orbit or vicinity tend to want to be not in his vicinity as little as possible. And uh, and so they end up leaving or getting kicked out or getting in trouble for some, you know, whatever nonsensical thing. Uh, and And that's a repeating pattern for years now, which is why. Scientology as an organization, as a, as a as a structure, is is a shrinking outfit. It's it's really doesn't have longevity the way that it's being run. It's only getting smaller and smaller over the decades. Do they still come after you? Yes, um, that does happen. Uh, not really with any frequency to me anymore personally. I have some trolling, you know, Scientologists come around and, you know, write me nasty grams or comments or something, but nothing like, and, I, and I'm very fortunate in this, that I have not experienced anything like what Leah or Mike Rinder or, you know, Tony Ortega, people who have been at it a bit longer and uh, that Scientology, for whatever reason, um, deems a higher threat level you know, for them, um, they go after them much harder than they've gone after me. But what happens to their faith? Because what happens to somebody who is an ardent believer, totally believes in the teachings of Ron L. Hubbard, and then they get kicked out for um, whatever's triggered um, the leader that day? What how are they how do they cope with that because obviously it's it's a religion and it's a faith and you do have people with such deep and passionate faith mm-hmm. you know and it's it's you know it's good faith and you know they're good people and everything and everything that they do is grounded in their faith what happens to them because that must be such 
a considerable blow to lose their access to that faith and to the way that they worship? Well, it's a good question, actually. There's there's a couple of things that can happen. Now, first off, getting kicked out of the Church of Scientology, especially at the level of Miscavige's inner circle or in his vicinity, is is a months long, maybe even years long process for people. Let's uh, let's remember that this is not the Catholic Church or, you know, your local Christian sect. This is a destructive cult, and the the control that is exerted against its members is is severe and harsh. And it's not just physical beatings. There's false imprisonment. There's you know various things that are done to people that are uh, clear-cut human rights violations, um, but they but they happen because it's because uh, it's a religion, and uh, that's a whole kind of long discussion there. But <laughs> I'm just kind of summarizing. But as far as once people are either kicked out of the church entirely or fall into such disfavor that they want to leave or escape, you'll have two options there. Either one, they quickly or not so quickly go down the internet rabbit hole, start learning about the group they were part of, learning things that they were never given any exposure to to when they were in. There's an incredible degree of information control and um, sort of siloing of information that occurs in destructive cults in general and certainly in Scientology. Um, so you're denied a great deal of information about the founder, about his history, about the subject itself, about what the techniques are doing to you, the explanations that are given of what the, of what it's all about. Almost all of this is just riddled with, with lies and nonsense. And once a person starts learning about those things after they get out and have the freedom to do so, they either eschew it entirely, they just leave it behind, don't want to have anything to do with it, and dump it like a bad habit, or they become what are called independent Scientologists. And this is a, a significantly smaller percentage of people go this route, especially these days with the internet being as, as uh, readily available as it is with all the information we put out there. But if you are a hardcore believer in L. Ron Hubbard and his techniques and ideas, and there are people who, who remain that way even after they leave the official church, they get together privately in, in private groups and they uh, practice Scientology together. And they do that. And it's called independent Scientology. It's also been called the free zone various other uh, monikers connected with it. It's, a, it's you know, at most, I would say, a, a couple thousand people, if I was really being generous. I, I honestly don't think there's more than a thousand of them at this point. But um, but that is a route that people go to, to answer your question. And it, it's interesting because Lauren brought up such a great point that it's a faith. Yeah. And, you know, I don't care what your faith is. Faith is is belief in something without any evidence. So you can believe anything you want on faith. And there isn't one religion or belief based on faith that's not wacky to someone who's not part of it. Well, that's a very Except good point. Except for the Cthulhu, because totally I'm, I'm sorry? Except for the Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah, except for the Cthulhu. Yeah. Except for, yeah, that's true. That's true. We should let the evil one in. Um, they uh, always opt for the evil choice, you know, in, in any in any given <laughs> given run there. Um, I think that's an interesting 
definition, though, because, you know, faith without evidence is something that people who have faith are going to argue as a definition because they do have evidence. Their evidence is anecdotal. Their evidence is experiential. And that's their bar for belief, right, is their their choice of evidence is, well, I experienced it. I believe this happened to me. Therefore, it is true. It is as true as the sun is going to rise tomorrow kind of true. And and this is where faith becomes this emotional investment. And that is as good as uh, objective reality or our attempts to understand objective reality to a person with faith. And so this is I, I think this has to be said out loud because it's because from a non-believer point of view, we can look at it and be critical of it. But from a believer's point of view, to the degree they're emotionally invested, they're not able to be critical about it. And that's that's your dividing line in terms of trying to understand how can somebody believe these things? There, there, there is no belief that is beyond a person's ability to to, to believe. People can believe anything, and do. It, it, it has to do with that emotional investment, and I think that's a key to understanding your your point there. Yeah, and, and I want to point out, I'm not bashing anybody who believes anything, because, like you said, there's anything can be believed. I'm certainly not bashing people of of a faith in something, even Scientology, because if that's your faith and that's what you believe, it, it's not for nefarious reasons. And it doesn't mean you're stupid. It Because some of the most intelligent people believe the weirdest fucking shit. I mean, Lauren, do we have to talk about, you know, the fairies and, you know, the father of Sherlock Holmes. So, right. That's right. Well, a point here, I guess, that I was trying to go to there is that you'll have people become so invested in their faith that they no longer think about it as faith. I would never have told you as a Scientologist that Scientology is something I believe in. I would have pushed back right away on the entire concept that this is a faith-based subject. Because my, again, my threshold of evidence was anecdotal. It was, well, I experienced it. So therefore, this is absolutely positively as true as engineering or astrophysics or, you know, electricity. It's that true. It's not a matter of I believe it and therefore it's true. It is I have observed the phenomenon occur to me in my waking real reality and so therefore it is true with a capital t and um and that's kind of the first point of departure for a scientologist is no scientologist really thinks about their experience as a faith-based experience and that's one of the ways that they get you <laughs> is, mm-hmm. is they say no this isn't about faith and belief this is about you doing it experiencing it and therefore knowing it is true not believing it's true and that's that's wordplay but it's powerful wordplay and i may come across sounding like an apologist here and i don't mean to and if if you follow my train of thought you'll i think you'll see where i'm going because i don't want to put words in your mouth but i'm going to use words that have come out of your mouth yeah yeah go ahead of course that 
to a lot of people now, after the Leah Remini series and, um, you know, all the, all the stuff that's come out in recent years and Tom Cruise being wacky on Oprah and, you know, all the stuff that Scientology gets such a bad rap that you tend to hear about someone and, you know, the whisper, oh, that person's a Scientologist and your instant just mind wants to go, let's make fun of them. Let's talk about Xenu. Well, that's not fair because you, you've said yourself, the majority of people in it don't know anything about the Xenu thing. And B, they're not in it to be, I'm in this to be in a cult. They're in this because they believe they're doing good for the world. Correct. So to go after the people that are in Scientology, I, I don't think it's fair. It's it's a, it's a wrong target. I'll certainly say that. that. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I mean to you know, publicly attack them or just mock them and ridicule them. No, it's the, it, you're not really helping anybody doing that. No, you because know? it's not, it, it's like any cult or any, and, and you know, people get, I've gotten hate mail here when I've described a lot of these fundamentalist churches in America, the Christian churches as cults mm-hmm. because they are. Mm-hmm. Does that mean all religion is a cult? Well, in a way, yeah. <laughs> Yes and no, right? Again, by dictionary definition, they certainly fit the definition of a cult in terms of dedicated belief to a person, idea, or principle. That's that is a cult, and and to that degree, you know, one could uh, very easily define the Boy Scouts as a cult or something. But I use the term destructive cult to to bring a whole another level of layer to it, you know, of, of, of the coercion that is involved and the, the, the sort of uh, obsession with money, sex, finance, control, you know, the top-down structure, the codependent relationships, all of that aspect of it. And that's where I depart from the idea that all religions are cults because they're not destructive cults, although I'll certainly agree they are cults. Okay, wait a second. Did you say money, sex, power? I did. An influence? Yes. First off, you just described 90s hip-hop, which I love. <laughs> don't be trying to tell me <laughs> 90s hip-hop is a cult. Okay? Yes, of course. Of course. Okay. But, and, and just a couple more things I want to hit on in Scientology before I go on to the other topics of that course. I want to really talk to you about. Yeah. Um, a, in the beginning of the, the, the rambling part of this show, Lauren was telling me that in the UK, Scientologists are banned from science fiction conventions. No kidding. That's the first time I'm hearing that. Yeah, they used to come a lot to science fiction conventions and they used to offer to audit people. Yes. But they started to get a they um, started to get a bit um, aggressive and start to corner people while they were waiting for autographs. So now they're, they're not like legally banned or anything but there's kind of like they're not welcome because it was a case people were autographs and they'd come up and they'd come up and sort of like target the star trek people you know because they were waiting to see you know captain janeway or whatever and kate mulgrew i do know her name i've met her she's lovely um and um you know they they'd corner them and it was strange because they'd because a lot of people were like, oh, do you want to know where you're going wrong in your life? And they'd be like, no, I'm just here to, you know, 
meet my favorite actor from Star Trek. No, thank you very much. So it's just kind of like they pin people, you know, yes. when they couldn't move or anything. That and makes just, complete sense to me. That makes total sense to me. Hubbard advised that sci-fi, um, uh, new age, uh, spiritual conventions, get-togethers, meetups, things like that, would be an ideal place. Uh, paranormal groups, UFO meetings, things like that. Fringy kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, these days... You know, nerds have kind of risen <laughs> over the last many decades. Hubbard died in the 80s. I mean, his so his advice was back when these were more fringy things, and now they are not. And yet the Scientologists still try to show up at these things to promote their woo and uh, and clearly not being uh, appreciated there. And I'm I, to me, that's music to my ears. I, I'm very happy to hear that. I don't think we have we I don't know if we have a Scientology church in the UK at all. Oh, you do. You have quite a few of them. Do we? I don't know. But they're tiny. Yes, they're tiny. um, We do have Mormons come and visit us. So there are Mormon churches in Wales. (laughs) They're always very sweet. (laughs) And they're always very young. You're like, oh, you're on your first mission, aren't you? (laughs) Aww. Look at the little missionaries and their ties. <laughs> badges. Yes, yes. That's actually shocking to me because, you know, as an American, I'm ignorant, like most Americans. But in the UK, the church is the state. Yeah, oh, but you still have England, freedom right? of religion. You still have freedom of religion, but the church is the state. Just. It would seem like kind of a waste of time to send Mormon missionaries. Yes and no. The queen is the head of state, but she doesn't have any power. So she is the figurehead and the head of the church. But the church is run by the Archbishop of Canterbury, ostensibly. So you don't really she doesn't have much input. Like she's like her official title is Defender of the Faith. But that's a that's a title that's over 500 years old and was you know, given to Henry VIII when he defended Catholicism. So it's really not, it doesn't mean anything, to be quite honest with you. She's about 500 years old, too, so. No, she's not. She's 96, and she can beat your ass, Brian. <laughs> she has that power. Uh, now, Hubbard was, I mean, that was brilliant of him to target the UFO groups, target the paranormal groups, target the... Oh, the yeah. fringe groups, the nerds, the outsiders. Yep. I mean, obviously, that's who you want to target with anything. Yeah, no, they have a lot of appeal there because there's a lot of sci-fi in Scientology. But Hubbard himself was, you know, a lot of people will say, ah, he was just a science fiction writer. Well, he wasn't. I mean, he wrote so much, mm-hmm. reams and reams and reams of pulp novels. Westerns, adventure stories, uh, I believe some superhero stories, romance, stories, Westerns, romance, mystery, adventure, uh, air-based stuff. Because he was a, and he had real experience with that. I mean, he was a glider pilot, uh, a barnstormer type. You know, that that was his original fiction was around that. That's that kind of thing. About fifteen years ago, I got to speak to the legendary Forrest Ackerman. Really? Famous sponsors, yeah. And I asked him about, because he was one of L. Ron Hubbard's publishers for a while. Yeah. And I said, what did you think of all this stuff? And he goes, ah, he was the fastest writer I ever knew. 
Yep. He said he could write a book in a day. If I'd have teamed him and Ed Wood up together, they'd have put out three books a week because Ed was the fastest typer and Elrond was the fastest writer. Yep. That would be absolutely true. The quality wouldn't be that great. <laughs> Are you bashing Ed Wood now? <laughs> but he could but he could do it. Hubbard Hubbard was quite amazing that way. He really could pound out the stories. And that's why pulp fiction writing and, and that era was such a good fit for him. Uh because he was not a, a highly literate, uh well educated uh person. He was well traveled in certain ways. And he, but he failed out of schools. He didn't get along with people. And he was, and he was just sort of this inveterate liar. I mean, and that was in real life kind of a disaster for him. But in the story writing world, his ability to spin a yarn is what kept a roof over his head for many years. And I've read quite a few, um, of his. Should I call them works? Because, <laughs> like, I'm trying to be nice. He wasn't the best writer. Um, some of the science fiction stuff's got some great ideas in it. And he's no Philip K. Dick. But, you know, I've read a couple of the Western pulp novels he did. Um, I'd read one about a submarine adventure he did. I mean, they're not well written, but I mean, he'd have a career today. Of course he would. Of course he would. He could pound it out. And uh, and he could, you know, he could come up with some idea, pound out a story. Dialogue was awful. Plot was trite. You know, the characters are all stereotypes, but he can do it. And yeah. you can absolutely uh, make money doing that if you can if you can just sit there and pound them out. And the last thing I want to touch on with, with Scientology, and, and if you'd come back another time and we could talk about you leaving it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or, Happy know, to. Because that, like I said, that would be such, that would be a long show. And there's other things I want to discuss. But the last thing with Scientology is you say, and this, this blew my mind when I first heard you say it, that the majority of people involved in it don't know about the really wacky elements of it. The high-level confidential stuff. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Now, when the people is it that when they are, when they do get to that higher level, they're so immersed in it that that doesn't seem so wacky to them, or are there yeah. people that get to that level and just say, "Whoa, okay, you know, I was with you until <laughs> Zenith." Yeah, well, that has happened, and let's be clear that there are there are plenty of people who get to that level have invested the money, have invested the time, have jumped through all the, you know, hoops, have passed all the loyalty tests, and then get there and look at it and go, you know what, this is this is crazy. I, I can't be part of this. And they leave. And that happens. Um, it happens at all levels of Scientology. And so it's not a matter of, you know, everybody who gets in is is so brainwashed that they that they travel all the way to the top. But for those who do, you know, they, they are invested. They're invested for various reasons, social, economic, um, spiritual, psychological. Right. And um, and they have to stick with it. And there is a gradual uh, exposure to this what we'll call sci fi material. The, the space opera is, is actually the term Hubbard uses for it, because that's the old term for sci fi. When you wrote those stories, you were writing space opera. And um, 
And there's a lot of that in Scientology, and a great deal of it is not confidential. You can readily access it uh, on day one if you if you're looking and you want to you know uh, engage with that material. Most people don't. Most people who get into Scientology are there because they they have a problem and they want they want to help with a solution to that problem. And Scientology provides a solution, and those solutions are routinely common sense, very simple to understand solutions. But when somebody's in the middle. They're not necessarily thinking in common sense terms or that the problem defies their ability to solve it. And so they get a little bit of help and, you know, and then that end it looks like Scientology works and then they become more curious about it and they get deeper into it. And then suddenly Hubbard's talking about planets and aliens and things in the past. And you're like, really? But you're, you know, once you've kind of committed to it and you think it's a helpful thing, then well, I can't disprove any of this, and it's not like it's any weirder than those guys down the road, you know, with the big cross on the building who tell me that I need to eat the, you know, blood and body of Christ. What? You know, like, like there's all kinds of goofy beliefs out there. So so people roll with it. And uh, the the thing to know that most people don't quite get their wits around in terms of this stuff is the space opera stuff is colorful, it's interesting, it makes for nice window dressing, but it's not the core of Scientology. It's not what it's about, it's not what people are there for, and it's not why they stay. It's, it, it makes it more colorful and more interesting, but the core elements of Scientology have to do with turning you into a god, not having you believe in aliens. And, and while that sounds even crazier, it, and it is, to try to become a god, that's actually the carrot that Scientology is dangling in front of you the entire time, is your personal immortality, your spiritual freedom, your eternity is determined by what you do here and now in Scientology. So if you do it right, and you follow this path, and you pay your money, and you pay your dues, you will achieve these incredible gains. And that really doesn't have a lot to do with aliens. Well, if you drink Jesus's blood and eat his flesh, you're going to get that too. That's right. I mean, That's it, right. it's all wacky. Well, it, it is. It's all, yeah. it's all, e I mean, let's be, let's be really blunt. It's all ego driven. It's all about ego boosting. Fear. Whether, you know, and, 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 and fair enough, because that is one of our, deepest emotional needs is our sense of self and sense of self-importance. And and there's some people out there who have very exaggerated senses of self-importance. I was at the top of that list, you know, when I was a Scientologist. It encourages it, it foments it, it creates it. And, um, and it can take it all the way to a full-blown narcissism. And that's what these groups do. Uh, it's not just Scientology, but no, in, in general. In fact, I, I wanted to get to that. That, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, as a child of the '70s, you know, cults were everywhere, and and they were mocked and ridiculed everywhere too. You, you know, the 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 the, the Hare Krishnas in airplane, which yep. were hilarious, and <laughs> yeah. you know the you know, Three's Company did episodes where the cults came into town and. And it was kind of this like silly thing that you laughed and mocked it, but then a movie came out 
that I was a kid when I saw it, and it fucked me up, called Ticket to Heaven. Oh, I've heard of that. I don't. It's. I believe I've seen that. Is that the? It, well, tell me what was that about? About well, it's a veiled, veiled story about a guy getting sucked into the Moonies. Ah. And okay. then his family getting him, his friend, um, risking everything to get him out and getting him into a deconversion thing. Yes, I believe I have seen this. It actually is available on YouTube. Believe it. Yes. Okay, Nick Mancuso. I definitely saw this. Yes, it, I remember this. It terrified me. Yeah. And cults went from being something that was funny and you made you laughed at and was lighthearted to, oh my God, this is fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. And then you get a little older and you start reading about Jonestown and and Manson and other cults of the '60s that sprung off from the hippie communes. And then as a historian, as we get even older and wiser, I start digging farther back and saying, you know, people, this isn't a um, latter half of the 20th century phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Cults have been around since the beginning of time. Correct. And when I, one of the things I said in the intro, what I admired about you so much, is that you didn't just decide, I'm going to crusade just against Scientology and be outspoken. You went back and got an education and studied the phenomenon of cults, the destructive behavior of cults, and the history of them. And I think you're, you know, you're one of the more qualified people around to talk about this. Sure. And I always wish that, oh, I wish he'd do some episodes on ancient cults. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> I don't think the majority of your audience wants that. Yeah. Whereas a history show like mine, I think that would be great to go there. So, if you don't mind, give me a brief history of the history of cults. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, as you say, right, this is something as old as, as dirt. And, 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 and it's because of the dynamics of how it all works, right? I mean, what, I, what I've really specialized in is coercive control. And coercive control is, is an abusive form of control. It's a, you know, we all need to be controlled in our lives. And we all need a degree of direction and people taking responsibility for us, i.e. our parents, you know, because we're in a position where we're not able to be responsible for ourselves. But that can be taken and is often and always taken too far. And this has been uh, an age-old problem with people is how much authority is too much authority. Well, there's really no solid answer to that question. It depends on the context. And so through history, you're going to have various groups who form up around various ideas having to do with either controlling the group or escaping control in some fashion, which itself can become its own controlling mechanism, right? Uh, there, is, there is the most fascinating set of cults that form up uh, that are anti-authoritarian <laughs> uh, that we see, you know, around in the world even today. So, 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 you know, there are there have been thousands, tens of thousands of these groups through the years that we can point to and and say, well, this was a cult or this was a cult. And so, I've tended to rather look at the dynamics of it, the mechanics of it. How does it work and why? And it's it, and it, as long as people have emotional needs and those emotional needs can be manipulated, we will have authoritarians and we will have destructive cult coercive situations. It's just the nature of people that they want to get one over on other people. And there are some people, the sociopaths in society, fortunately not the majority, 
but the sociopaths obsess about this and and they and that their their life mission is to control other people take dominance over other people that kind of thing so in a broad sense we see that through all of history that's the first thing i can say about this from a historical context is it's always been there and because of the way people are it always will be a problem this is that we're never going to educate everybody to a point where we're not going to have this problem in the same way that we would you know that it would be a, a bit of a silly idea Unfortunately, this idea exists, but it is a silly idea that we're going to educate everybody out of religion. You know, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to we're going to educate people so that politics is is a more rational thing. OK, Because that sure. works well. Yeah. You show me how to do that. Right. Uh, so there's there's some unrealities connected with some of this. And I and, and I've been down those rabbit holes. You know, I used to think. Well, we could have a world where critical thinking could be taught at all levels and people wouldn't fall for this kind of thing. But it, it, people aren't built to not fall for it. If you can be lied to and deceived, you can fall for a cult. And it's and it really is that simple. And if not a cult, you can fall for a domestic partnership that's abusive. I mean, it's the same dynamics are at play. When it comes to belief, uh, as we've already said, and it's an important point, it's not a non-important point, people can believe anything, anything. If you give them a good enough reason, they can believe it. Uh, whether the end of the world is coming next week what? or whether the sun isn't going to rise or whether I'm going to become a god or whether Donald Trump is God. I mean, you know, or Jesus reinvigorated or JFK has come back. There are so many crazy ideas out there. People can believe anything. And so so it's not even a matter of tracing beliefs, although we can do that. And it is a fascinating historical journey to do that when you look at Western esotericism and the, and the mystery schools and the, the Gnosticism and, the, and theosophy and Madame Blavatsky, which is the first person I go to. Um, from a historical perspective, almost the entirety of Western New Age thinking and new thought and free thought and these various movements that occurred through the 1900s, 1800s and 1900s, all flow from this this focal point or almost of Madame Blavatsky. <laughs> and this woman was amazing uh, because she would, did not really have an original idea in her body, in her bones her entire life. And yet she was the one who took all those old, you know, hermetic mystery school Gnostic ideas, went over to India, tra did honestly travel to India, traveled around the world. She was born in Russia. She was a bit of a outsider and, and a fringy kind of person almost from, from childhood. Very tomboyish, for example. She didn't like riding horses side saddle like other women, right? She wanted to be like a guy. And uh, nothing wrong with that. I'm just pointing out that she was cut At the from time, there was thought. something wrong with that. Well, she did have many things wrong with her, but I'm just trying to point out, you know, that wasn't necessarily one of them. I'm just pointing out that she was uh, an independent thinker. Let's put it that way. <laughs> She's one of the most fascinating figures. I mean, she married at, what, 17 just to be yeah. able to leave. That's right. And then she ditched the husband so she could travel the world. Never, never even consummated the marriage. That's right. No. Yeah. Blavatsky is 
remarkable. And it's so funny. It's so weird that, you know, a couple episodes ago, I think I talked about Blavatsky on the, on the show. Yeah. Yeah. She's an important figure to know. And, and, you know, uh, us, uh, our, our short term memories being as bad as they are and our historical understanding of things being as, as short sighted as it tends to be, we lose, you know, we, most people who are now preaching, believing and following so many of the principles that she espoused have no idea that they came from her. Uh, or, and of course go earlier because she was plagiarizing earlier work. But again, I'm, I'm pointing out that the, the, the function that she serves, and this is late 1800s, by the way. She was, um, she died in 1891. Uh, she was, uh, I, I think she was about 59 or 60 or something. So she had brought together and written voluminous, huge books that are just wandering, d- word salad. I mean, they are really, really insanely difficult to read, and they could mean, like Nostradamus's predictions, you can read almost anything you want to in them. And this is, but this is where we find the roots of Christian science, 19th century, 20th century occultism and mysticism and spiritualism. See, as the witchcraft era dies, the spiritual era starts. And spiritualism was something that was taken very seriously in the 1800s. And this idea of science and rationality and scientific method was bumping up against it. But Madame Blavatsky, like L. Ron Hubbard, who took it direct from her, <laughs> and others were, tr- were saying, look, what we're doing is we're merging science, the scientific method and scientific thinking with the old school spiritual Gnostic ideas. And this is where Christian science comes from. This is where Aleister Crowley's beliefs and ideas come from. And Aleister Crowley was about as direct an influence on L. Ron Hubbard as there ever was. Um, The roots of Scientology are right here. And Madame Blavatsky was a channeler. And channeling used to be something that was a big deal, channeling the spirits of dead people and especially famous dead people like Jesus and Buddha and various historical significant figures. And Blavatsky and others made a trade, a practice, a profession out of this kind of channeling work. And she was doing this as a very young woman. And she um, she basically built up following and built up a practice, you could say, uh, having to do with spiritualism. And uh, and she wrote at length about this, and she founded this group called the Theosophical Society, Theosophy. And, uh, and out of that, we find, basically, we can draw from that pretty much all of, like I mentioned, the New Age free thought movement comes out of that. And interestingly, the word cult was actually popularized in its current sense by the Christian fundamentalists who were pushing back against Blavatsky and her spiritualism and the Christian science spiritualism and the idea that we were going to take Christianity and and merge it with these ideas. The fundamentalists went, oh, no, you're not. And they wrote the fundamentals of Christianity, those, those 10 or 11 volumes 
which is where the fundamentalism movement came from. That was early 1900s. And it was a counter response to this growing spiritual occult practice. And that's where we get our modern interpretation and ideas of 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 what a, what a cult is. Yeah, it's it's so wild because I, I went down a rabbit hole when in my late teens through my early twenties on one of the real um, torchbearers for Blavatsky, and that was Manly P. Hall. Mm-hmm. And we did an episode with the the president of the uh, the new uh, Theosophical Research Center the, that Manly P. Hall founded. Did a whole episode on Manly Hall. Oh wow! And um, really interesting episode that had our audience scratching their head, going, "What is this guy? What are they talking about?" But Hall was like Blavatsky. They were they were quote unquote historians that were documenting. The history of the, you know, the, the the secret teachings of all ages. That's right. The famous one. That's right. So, in every, you know, if you read like Manly P. Hall's secret teachings of all ages, if you can lift it, I mean, it's like a thirty-pound book. Same with Blavatsky's work. Yeah, it's, it's huge. I mean, I think it's five thousand pages or something. And that's just volume one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, it all, it, and it's interesting because it makes me wonder. You know, I did a, I did an episode years ago about whether L. Ron Hubbard suffered from a condition called temporal lobe epilepsy, TLE, and this is a, this is an this is an actual lesions in the temporal lobes, side lobes of the of the brain. And with temporal lobe epilepsy comes a series of symptoms that's, uh, that are used to diagnose it now. Now, this is not known about until the 1980s. L. Ron Hubbard actually could not have been diagnosed with this condition during his life. Um, but we look back and we look at the laundry list of characteristics or symptomology of it. And one of those things is hypergraphia, the writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. Just, a, just an amazing volume of, of words just flow from people with hypergraphia. And hypergraphia is one of the main um, symptoms of a TLE condition. And uh, so we, we and, and there's also the other thing that happens with TLE that is absolutely fascinating is a religious hysteria, a religious obsession or compulsion. Um, sort of a euphoria connected with uh, with religious thinking, and a self-aggrandizement, a megalomania often accompanies that, where the person will believe they are God, or they are Jesus, or they are a Messiah, or they are an incredibly significant religious figure. And of course, L. Ron Hubbard absolutely believed that, as did Madame Blavatsky. And I find it interesting that they both uh, come together on this hypergraphia point. They were both incredibly prolific writers. You know, and, and it, it's funny because I, I always thought of Hubbard as very manly P. Hall and probably Blavatsky, like, but we don't have the evidence in the recordings. But Manly Hall would deliver these like hour to two hour lectures weekly, many of which are recorded and preserved that he would just go sit in a chair with no notes, no nothing, and never stammered or stuttered through them. It would give these long, just insane, detailed lectures on a 
wide range of topics and subjects. And I've heard a lot of the L. Ron Hubbard's lectures, and they're the same. Yes, yes. He it, doesn't it, it, stutter or stammer. He nope. doesn't have notes, and he can just go on on a topic for an hour and a half coherently. Right. Which is, I, well, you know, I sit here and I look at the about section on Manly P. Hall and I could almost fill in L. Ron Hubbard's name. Yeah. Thousands of lectures, over 150 volumes published. L. Ron Hubbard has a legit Guinness Book of World Record holder for most number of published works. And I believe I believe that's one of them. And one of the other ones is most translated author in the world, which is due to the work of Church of Scientology on that. But it's so interesting because Manly P. Hall was a contemporary of Hubbard, born in 1901 and died in 1990. How interesting. Yeah. Um, and if you don't know much about Hall, we could uh, talk off air about him a lot, too, because I well, got I, I, really I, I'm into Manly Hall. aware of him in connection with um, Lovatsky. Lovatsky. But uh, I see here, just in a, just in a casual look, because uh, he's a name I've heard many times before, and um, the secret teachings of all ages is, you know, one of his notable works here. And I, I've certainly heard of that many times. Yeah, Hall is also fun because he, like Blavatsky, born in a small Canadian town, left to live with his grandmother and lived almost a nomadic life with her. Very little education, um, very formal education, I should say. It's similar to what you hear about Hubbard. His formal education is very limited, um, yet they were able to just do this, and so much of it by memory. They, whether they all suffer from this, this this form of epilepsy or, I'm not saying a divine spark, but there's some spark in that brain of people like Lobotsky and Hall and Hubbard that don't exist in most people. Well, exactly, which is actually one of the reasons I, I point to that as a potential reason why they were the way they were. It's not, a, you know, it's certainly not an excuse or justification for any of their abusive behaviors and, and all of these folks engaged in, you know, abusive behaviors. Uh, I, certainly L. Ron Hubbard, I can put him at the top of the list, but Blavatsky certainly was uh, just as good at making enemies as she was at making friends. And she and she was an incredibly rough-tongued woman. I mean, she just uh, if she didn't like you, you knew immediately. Um, Hubbard was no not a whole lot different. Lauren's and, the same and way. That, Pissed and her that, off and it's all down. <laughs> well, that level of temperament, that level of of extreme thinking, and sir, and also let's let's not uh, beat around the bush. That level of ego. Um, it, it, it has a whole set of phenomena connected with it <laughs> that are usually not good, you know, and so you get these cults of personality that develop around these people and they take advantage. They're the kind of people who take advantage of others. Yeah. You know? it, Hall is baffling to me, though, for the fact that unlike the others, he seems to be more about telling you about what other people were thinking and what was important. Not that I'm not the Messiah, but I'm going to tell you about all these Messiahs. Sure. Which is slightly different than, than, than Hubbard, but they're so similar. Yes. They even looked a little bit alike. <laughs> if Manly Hall all looked like the Joker with the red hair. But Hubbard's lectures, I, I got to give them this. I mean, they could be just incredibly fascinating to listen to. 
until yes, you step back and realize what you're listening to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, I'm I'm also uh, just in checking this, I'm reminded of a um, another commonality here between these folks, which is uh, the Rosicrucianism. Well, yeah, I was going to get into that. I that's you just read my mind. Oh, yes. Yeah. The Rosicrucian connection, the rosy cross, the eight pointed cross that is used in the Rosicrucianism is lifted entirely and made into the Scientology cross, for example. It's also something that you'll find Hubbard lifted that um, via Aleister Crowley, who was using that for the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, which was his uh, church, I suppose you could say. So um, just another connection there. Yeah, and like you said, you read my mind, you went there. So talk a little bit about Rosicrucians, because that's a good example of, I don't know if I want to call them cult-like thinking, but it's certainly borderline. Well, I I mean, it can be used uh, very, very easily for cultic, you know, by a cultic leader. Yes. It's it's I'm just going to I'm just going to I think it's going to be best if I just summarize it here right off their Wikipedia page. I mean, Rosicrucianism is a it's a spiritual and cultural movement that arose in Europe in the early 17th century. OK, so we have a bunch of texts that get written and we're talking about esoteric spiritualism. We're talking about old school mystery ideas. Right. Like what what explains the world? What explains why we're here? What explains what's going on? really what's our real relationship with god and the the universe and the infinite and who are we and what is our place this is what i mean these are the questions that get asked through the ages that are answered by these various schools and uh the rosicrucianisms right the rosicrucian manifestos heralded a universal reformation of man through science and spirituality and the idea is that what 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 these things are trying to do, whether it's Rosicrucianism or theosophy or hermeticism, I mean, there's, there's so many things this goes back to, is it's about transformation. It's about we're not in a good enough state to understand our place in the world and where we're all at, and we need answers. And these schools of thought provide those answers. And they uh, generally have to do with levels of ascension, of awareness or ability. You're not ready for everything all at once. In other words, there's a there's a graduated scale that you're going to have to climb or follow. In Scientology, this is represented as the bridge to total freedom. But it goes back. I mean, this is an old Freemasons concept of of levels of indoctrination, levels of exposure to the hidden mysteries and secrets. And you don't get everything all on day one because you're not ready for it. It might even hurt you to not to get it all on day one. You have to be ready for it. You have to be prepared spiritually, mentally, physically. And uh, these are systems of belief that feed into this framework that promise transformation, personal transformation, uh, uh, you know, a, a rising to your godlike natural state or this higher states of a of awareness where we will have a peaceful world, everybody will get along, everything will be great, there won't be any more problems or worries or concerns. You know, there's a basic recognition that something ain't right with us. 
And then there's an offered series of answers. And I'm speaking very general, of course, because, you know, we, we can get into the specifics of of Rosicrucianism, although I, I didn't really come totally prepared for that. No, today. that's OK. Well, you, you hit exactly the points I wanted you to. So. Yeah. But these points of co- the, the commonality is the framework. And and we will find variations because because what happens is here's the funny thing is people get involved. You have these beautiful systems of thought. And then people get involved, and it's like, well, Joe disagrees with Bill about whether it is that, you know, when you're doing the Ninth Temple right, you have to shake hands with your middle fingers squeezed in or squeezed out, right? And I just don't think that that's the way it should be. And then that, then Joe will go off and start his own school, and, and he'll change a few commas or change a few key concepts maybe, and now we have a whole other school of belief. And this happens over and over and over and over. It's the reason why we have thousands of Christian denominations, for example. You have a basic Christian belief, a basic framework, and a thousand variations on that framework. Same with these esoteric schools. You have a concept of transformation, of spiritual ability, of psychological ability, of physical transformation even, and how do we achieve it? How do we get this better world? How do we build this better mousetrap? That's what these things are all about. And from that comes honest efforts, and out of that come misguided and even uh, premeditatedly bad, evil efforts to, to dominate and control people using these systems. What I think is evil is that you just threw poor Joe under the bus. I don't even know who Joe is. <laughs> but it sent me on one of Damn my... Damn that Joe. Joe's a fucker. I know, fucking Joe. But you sent me on one of my <laughs> random stream of thought conscious things because, and it goes back to Scientology and your involvement. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm assuming you're approximately my age. 52. Okay, yeah, very close. Cool. Um, 48, so. Ah. You grew up in Scientology, born and raised. I mean, this was something you didn't choose. You were born into it. Correct. And you say they have a lot of control over keeping information away from you that would be harmful to your belief. Mm-hmm. But you lived a normal public school life. Mm-hmm. You know, you had friends that weren't Scientologists. You obviously, you know, you grew up in California, so you probably watched the fucking Dodgers. But, <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Yankee fan, so. <laughs> How did things that could get past them or maybe they couldn't somehow but joe reminded me of it like uh, joe's garage frank zappa when they do the whole section on l ron hoover in the church of applientology mm-hmm. you know I, when you would have heard that at that age would that have just made you laugh pissed you off would it even have registered that they were totally mocking your religion well, that was fairly obvious. I think that would have been something I would have noticed and, you know, sort of probably grumbled about. You know, it depends on the level of involvement as to what your response is going to be. Because if you are, ex- the more extreme a person becomes on a topic, the, le- the more serious they take it and the less willing they are to have it ridiculed or joked about. And the I did. wasn't go- hiding that from you, were they? I mean. 
Well, there was a, it, it, what here's how it works is, um, yes, the church discouraged any looking at having to do with anything that was anti Scientology. And by anti means anything that's not anybody, anything anybody's saying that isn't us saying it is anti. It's bad. Right. They're negative. They're critical. They're awful. Um what you are trained to do in a group of this kind, and this is any group of this kind, is you are trained to self-police because you're told that this information could actually be destructive to your spiritual well-being or your psychological well-being, that, that it is actually bad for you to consume this information. And uh in the same way that maybe Lovecraft would have inferred that the Necronomicon was not good reading, <laughs> right? Like it's bad for you. If you open this book and start reading it, really bad things are going to happen to you. And it's not hard, again, when you're in an extremist belief set, mindset, to to believe that. Because you think that words and thoughts and and these ideas have power. And they don't. They're just thoughts and ideas. But but you believe they do. And this is very much, very much a part of magical thinking. And this is very, very old stuff. Very old stuff, right? It used to be, and we still use this in fantasy to this day, it used to be that if you knew somebody's true name, you could control them. You could have power over them. This was an old magical concept. Uh, that word, your name, had power and influence. And that wasn't the only kind of word that had power and influence. All these esoteric concepts and ideas did. In Scientology, the word Xenu is a power word. It's a word that you're not supposed to know or use until you rise to the level where you are ready for it. And if you bandy that word about in Scientology to people who know what you're talking about, they're going to tell you to shut the hell up, right? That you can't be running around saying that. You're going to hurt people by saying that. So so this concept of words have power and potentially destructive consequences, I mean, hell, we see it to one degree or another in the way people treat the N-word. And I'm not – this is not a value judgment as to whether it's right or wrong, good or bad. I'm just pointing out – it's an idea everybody can get behind. Oh, that word has so much power to it that we can't say it out loud in, in, in any kind of company. Build on that concept and you get to the self-policing place pretty quickly. And that's all the point I was trying to make there with. No, so, so you were aware of things like Zappa mocking them or other jokes, but they weren't totally hiding them. You just, because of your belief, you just like, damn. Out. Yeah, I would I would self-police myself away from it. Ah, oh, fuck Frank Zappa. Fuck those guys. Right. And I would never listen to another word Frank Zappa ever had to say on anything. Then you'd be missing a lot. Well, and I clearly I did. And I don't disagree. Right. But that's exactly that's the closed mindedness of it is you literally start partitioning your life into what's acceptable to look at or see and what's not. 
And we find this in other groups. I mean, I've interviewed um, survivors of Christian groups, Christian cults, who grew up in an environment where they were not permitted or allowed to look at TV commercials or even movie posters when they were out in public. It was, you know, hands up, hat on, eyes down on the ground. It's a whole drill of self-policing that is drilled into kids so that they won't even be exposed. They won't let themselves be exposed to that information. And that, I only highlight it and emphasize it because it's the most powerful form of thought control there is, is when you control yourself. It's pretty frightening, really. But we all do it in some respect. Lauren, what you got? Oh, um, I was just going to um, say about um, names that um, you're not allowed to say. We've had that on this podcast as well. We did a couple of paranormal episodes and we were talking about Ouija boards and uh-huh. the Mama and Zozo. And then we had people emailing in legitimately concerned about us because <laughs> we had said these words out loud. And I was just like, they're, they're just words. And it's like a whole, you know, so even in popular culture, you know, with the paranormal shows and they are putting these words out there that you shouldn't say these words that, you know, it's not just religious, religious cults. It's the cult of, you know, the, the paranormal teams, you know, well, it's more of a modern cult, you know, but they are like a cult in themselves. You have these personalities who, you know, you devote yourself to and you take everything that they say, for, you know, verbatim and it's just an extraordinary power that you know that people messing around and coming up with nonsense on a wooden board exactly exactly is having you know i'm not saying that to make light of anybody's beliefs or anything but you know how can you you know it's for a television program you know it's for entertainment purposes only and it says that before the program begins so you know it's kind of scary how um people in television are using that technique to um create a devotion among especially reality television that is a very that is very cult like yes yeah. yes i would agree the so, the concept of sacredness old as dirt right again very 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 old ideas and and what we assign sacredness to Sometimes, you know, on hindsight review, we might go, you know, I think we might have gotten it a little off on that one. I think we might have gotten a little wrong on that one. But this is relatively new thinking for people for most of our history up until easily, you know, 100 years ago or something. uh, Almost everybody was going to agree readily and quickly that there were topics and and subjects and things you dare not explore. You dare not go near those because they are actually dangerous to you to explore. And it's taken a long time uh, to just just start getting past this idea because and that and that there is no such thing as a sacred idea. Sacred science is one of the is one of Lifton's eight thought reform components i mean it's 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 part and parcel of controlling people to to sacralize concepts and words and limit behavior connected with them you see that in um in in the medieval church you know when you've got the you've got the women having the religious experiences and they're having you know interactions um mostly with 
um, it was mostly with the passion of Christ that they would have these visions of Christ's suffering so that they identified themselves with him. And the, the, you know, the reasoning behind that was women suffer through childbirth. So that's how they identify with Christ. But they would always have a religious advisor and they'd always have a man that would take this very profound and personal experience that they were having and explain it back to them. And so they would explain it back to them because they were skirting with the idea they were skirting with heresy to see Christ, to see God in the case of uh, Julian of Norwich, you know, was was a type of heresy. And, you know, you do. And um, Julian of Norwich is the divine uh, revelations became for a period of time a heretical text because it talks about um, an unconditional divine love between God and humanity but again you know you see that uh, with all of the saints you know all of the female saints in all of their hagiographies they will talk about this religious advisor who they will write the experience down for and then they will send it off and then after the death of the woman the religious advisor would put all to would put the experiences together in a in a published edition and then publish it and then that from that you would get the cults of these saints popping up from the Mm. from the, the work of these women and even with people like marjorie kemp who was a member of the laity um she wasn't an enclosed religious woman you know but her uh, her experiences were very profound um when she was writing the book of marjorie kemp she wasn't the one writing it she was dictating it to her son who was then you know with his experiences and mine you know experiences and everything writing that down for his mother so you've got this argument you know You've got that, you know, in the interpretation between conversations between him and his mother. How did that work? You know, what was lost because he felt that it would look better this way or that didn't need to be included. So, you know, it's. And and unfortunately, we see that exact same thing, that exact same little play, play out, manifest every single time uh, there is translations through history. Right. And, and I and and that's a that's a great point on the women to men translation aspect of this. Uh, the the authoritative. Well, what's the what's the cultural thinking, culturally approved thinking right now? And that tends to be what guides the interpretations of things more so than objective reality. But then you've got that with the Bible as well. It went through yeah. a censor so to speak, of a council of men. So we like now the Bible that you can go to a bookshop and buy is not the Bible as it was before it got to this council and went through essentially what was a censor. You know, they took bits out of the Bible that they didn't think uh, was true to the voice or story of Christianity. They created the narrative of Christianity. The narrative of Christianity is man-made. Yep. I agree completely. Yeah, it's 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 thought control yes. all the way around. Yes, that's exactly. And Warren, uh, Chris, and I can explain to you why men have to explain things to women. <laughs> yes, it, it, it makes you feel important. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that's that's, a, that's exactly why. <laughs> now I know I'd only keep you an hour, and we've already gone over. But I, I got to hit you one more, well, one more point Absolutely. I want to make. 
yeah. is that I was so excited when I got the email back that you agreed to come on the show, and I was calling Lauren and telling her that yeah. I got Michelle coming on. This is so awesome. Then, like two days later, you release a video talking about you're on vacation. Yeah. And I feel like the biggest dick in the world. I'm like the horrible manipulative cult guy now dragging you in on your vacation. So just thank you again for that. Ah, humbug. I am more than happy to be here. Uh, You might have noticed um, I am not, I do not have hypergraphia, but I do like to talk. So it's not a problem for me to be here. Well, we do something at the end of our show. Usually we just call it the rapid fire questions. Yeah, go for it. And I'll just ask crazy random questions right off the top of my head. There are no wrong answers unless you get one wrong, at which point I tell you. I'm going to start out with the easiest softball question in the world. Will you please agree to come back on after your vacation's over and we could talk about any topic you want? Of course, I'm happy to. Question number two. Pluto, is it a planet or not? Yes. Good answer. Question number three. My cat here, Cleopatra, who I will introduce you to in a second. Aww. In the world. Aww. Hi, Cleo. I once called Cleo Pazuzu on a podcast and got a lot of hate mail. Do you think it's wrong to call your cat Pazuzu? Um, no. Good answer. Three. And I noticed this in your background. See, people can't see you. This is an audio podcast. But on your podcast, there are videos, and we can see you. You have a lot of um, Star Wars and Iron Man's there. and you have, I think that's the Han Solo blaster, I believe. Yes, right behind me there, yeah. So, Jedis, is it a cult? Yes. Destructive cult? I became one. Sith? Cult? Yes, always. Okay. Good answer. I was going to say, don't defend one side against the other. <laughs> yeah. No, the extremism is the extremism is obvious there. And the, and the blindness uh, and lack of ability to critically think is there. So, I mean, so seriously, yeah, those are cults. Oh, yeah. And that, that was joking, but serious at the same time, because I, I said to a Star Wars fan recently that the Jedi Order was a horrible cult. And they got so pissed at me until I explained to them the whole Jedi Order and what it was about. And they're like, oh, my God, it is a cult. That's right. That's right. Oh, it was a hard pill for me to swallow, too. Uh, It wasn't something I uh, a conclusion I came to easily, to be honest with you, because I grew up with Star Wars. I mean, I I saw Star Wars when I was seven years old. You know, it's been it's been a lifelong thing for me. No guilt or no shame on me there, because Chewbacca was always my favorite character. He wasn't a Sith. He wasn't a Jedi. (laughs) He said, fuck the cults. I'm a Wookiee, damn it. That's right. That's right. First movie I saw in the theater, Star Wars. I, I have a question for you. Is um, is there any truth to... Um, ah, there it is. It's said that Chewbacca's name is derived from Kobaka, Sabaka, which is the Russian word for dog. Supposedly. Yeah. Because Lucas did base Chewbacca loosely on his own dog, whose name was Indiana. Yes. And then he so, named his main character after him in the next next genre. Yeah. It was awesome. Cults. Nazis bleeding and... Oh. Yeah, that, you know, that pissed me off. I know you're a sci-fi fan, so I can go here with you on this. When the Crystal Skull movie came out with Indiana Jones, and everyone was so pissed off because 
it's so terrible and there's aliens in Indiana Jones. How stupid is that? I'm like, no more stupid than the Ark of the Covenant making the Nazis melt. No, that wasn't the stupid part. It was the execution. It was it was not the it was not the genre of subject matter, it was the execution. Yeah, well, I agree with that. The movie sucked. Yeah, it sucked hard. But yeah, I was very disappointed. Um, almost as disappointed as I was, uh, although I don't think it's possible to be more disappointed than I was in Temple of Doom. Uh, I I had waited years. Uh, I had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think I, I think in my lifetime I have seen it 17 times in the movie theater. Like that movie is my movie, and uh, and so I was to say I was uh, in an anticipatory state. <laughs> When yeah. that sequel came out, yeah. I felt the same way with Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Just so bad. Right? Right? I mean, God, guys, could you try a little bit more effort? <laughs> you had gold on your hands and you turned it to shit. Ah. Well, here's one for Lauren. And uh, this, this could cause some fights here. Star Wars or Star Trek? Both. So at the moment, I have to say that there is a third option, and I probably would say the Orville. So I knew she was going to say that. I knew she was <laughs> going to say that. I I'm not a fan, actually. I tried to be, but I definitely am a fan of the spirit of Orville. I definitely get what he's trying to do, and I am all for it because I am an I am an old school Star Trek original series original movies guy. That's my Star Trek. Me too. Yeah, big time, big time. Rathacon, you know, or, or nothing. Um, that's that's the peak Star Trek for me. But I do have to say I, I claim both. I'm not one or the other for me. The only thing with the Orville, I would say, is the Mocklands. I don't know if everybody anybody saw Friends, but there's one episode where Monica is making things from this uh, substitute chocolate called Mocklet. And it just sounds so similar that it must be probably more than a coincidence. <laughs> mock, mocklet just sounds wrong because mock chocolate is just a, no. Yeah. Or as we called it here in America, that British chocolate, that Cadbury <laughs> shit, mock chocolate. Yeah. It's no, banned in America, I right hear. It is. But it's, it, it is. It is actually no. I have to say, we. Our chocolate is richer because it has more cocoa in it, but I will have to say three musketeer bars are perfection. Oh, so agree with you there. Oh, so agree. I could eat that nougat by the bowlful. Hey, first off, yeah. you're both wrong. <laughs> I'll only tell you, wrong. the score bar is the greatest candy bar. I'm going to disagree. Have you ever had cherry ripe? No. Australian. It's uh, it's like a, it's like a raspberry kind of inside and and chocolate outside. I've only they're only in Australia and they are amazing. See, my girlfriend she eats them oh, raspberry eggs, and and there's coconut in them too. Oh no, coconut kills it. It's like put pineapple on a pizza, you just ruined it. Nah. No, it's, I, I, I am rabidly disagreeing with you right now, although I agree with you on the pineapple on the pizza. That is an atrocity, uh, a crime against humanity. Dodgers <laughs> fan, huh? No, not anymore. I, I don't I don't sport ball very much, to be honest. But as a kid, Dodgers fan? Yeah, absolutely. Attended a couple of games. 
Absolutely. Just wrong. Oh, um, coconut and the Dodgers. I know. I have to disappoint in some fashion or another. Coconut, really? I know. I know. Hey, almond joy, mounds. Your thumbs up. Then again, my favorite candy of all time are circus peanuts. Oh, that's a good one. That's a most good people one. hate them. No, I like them. Circus yeah. peanuts are good. I'm more of a red red vines guy, though, in terms of uh, probably most eaten candy in my life. I think I've probably had more red vines than anything else. <laughs> what would be the candy of choice at a Scientology meeting? Your oh, audit table. What are they putting out? They putting Smarties out or? Uh, we have these things in um britain they're called flying saucers and they're like wafers that um, little wafers and sherbet in the middle so they would have flying saucers there i think there you go (laughs) no i just no coconut man come on all right best topping for a pizza oh pepperoni and bacon anchovies Ugh. Ugh. What? Wrong answer again. See, now you're the disappointment, Brian. You were doing so good with the Pluto answer. (laughs) (laughs) I am sorry. I'm just being a cult. I'm so sorry. I'm just bringing nothing but disappointment at the end of the episode here. Yeah, you know, you can't. Remember that invitation to come back? I don't know. Yeah, uh, we're going to rethink that now. I'm going to have a pizza party, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Um, One more. Rapid fire question before we before we wrap it up. If you wanted to give someone some advice on how to go about helping someone that they fear is getting involved in a destructive cult. Mm hmm. And most people don't have the know how to be able to talk someone through it or go about it. What avenues would you recommend? Would you recommend books? Is, is there a group you would recommend? Um, technique? What would be your best advice to have a friend help a friend they think is going down that rabbit hole? Um, the first and most important piece of advice I think I could give somebody in that situation is maintain communication. Keep it friendly. Keep it warm. Keep it real. Um, don't lie. But do not attack the group. But keep the communication, the relationship real and keep it alive. Because the thing that a cult will do, destructive cults especially, is they will try to sever those relationships. They will try to cut those ties. And the more uh, you can keep that alive, the better chance you have of helping this person in the long term. And um, that's something that we can't lose sight of, because once they cut you off, that's it. You can't do anything for them anymore. So maintain that relationship. And uh, that's that's the first thing. There's many, many more things, but that's first order of business is don't let them cut you out of their life. Because then it becomes heaven's gate. Well, it certainly can. And, And a number of people in heaven's gate had people in their lives who... Who let them let them go, shut them out, you know? And I'm not even blaming those people for what happened. That's not the point. No, 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 it's no. It's not about blame here. It's no. not about you're responsible for the person. Not at all the point. The point is if you are going to help them, if you're going to be a friend to them. Or want to help. Or want to help them, that's the first 
and most and important point anchor, is that yeah, can, you, you that can't help them if, you, if you're not talking to them. Exactly. Exactly. And I lied. I do have one more rapid fire question. <laughs> we can't end on such a serious note. Yes, yes. Now that you're on vacation and you get to walk away from from the everyday pressures of this for a while. Yep. I know you love Marvel movies. I know you love science fiction. What is the number one thing you're looking most forward to on vacation? The fun, let my hair down, just go nuts thing you're going to do on this vacation? Um, this is going to sound so boring to everybody, but literally it's the mendacity of yard work and walking my dog and making my house the way I want it to be. It, I've already started and it's just been so invigorating is the best word I've got for it. It's been so normal and I've just loved it. <laughs> that is, that, yeah. No, it, it's people don't realize the little things like that not only keep you sane, they keep you functioning, and they keep you happy. That's right. Exactly. And keeping us happy is something you've done for a long time, my friend. I'm such a fan of your show. Uh, I'm such a fan of your work. I am so thrilled and honored that you were able to come on with us today. Even though we had to listen to Lauren, I mean, we had to explain some stuff to her because us men, we have to explain to women. Yeah, I know. It's a rough, it's a rough duty we have having to, to mansplain all the time. But it's, you know, it's a burden I can carry. I understand. You're going to get emails again, Brian. I know. Which is hilarious because Lauren is one of, like, the world's leading, like, feminist voices. And, like, one of the most respected historians on the suffrage movement and women's imprisonment and medieval prisons. And ah, awesome. people think I really do try to mansplain. I'm like, wait a second, Lauren is, like, wait. I wrote the fucking book on wrestling. Okay? <laughs> She's writing the history of women in medieval prisons. I wrote, you know, sweaty men in underwear play fighting. You know? Right. Right. There's no, no Lauren's been great. Lauren's, Lauren's been great. And, again... um Please agree to come back on. And are you still in California? I don't want to give out where you live. Oh, no, no, no. I'm in Denver. I've been in Denver for many years now. So you're high as a kite. Well, not right now, but I will be after the show. (laughs) (laughs) See, Lauren, that's an American joke that we have to explain to you. Mansplaining again. (laughs) Well, pot is pot is fully legal here in Colorado. And and it's funny because I never partook until I moved here and it, and I realized one fine day it was legal here. And I was like, why am I not trying this now? It's legal. You just destroyed the whole premise of turning it legal. The argument was, if you make it legal, people are going to start doing it more. And everyone was like, no one who didn't do it before is going to start doing it just because it's like, well, you just fucking blew that out of the water. Yeah, no, that's absolutely not a good argument. I absolutely started after it was legal. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I'll stick to cigars. Fair enough. But uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you. From the incredibly smoke-filled high state of Colorado. There you go. And myself in Buffalo, New York. And with me, as always... Lauren from Swansea. Good night. Good night. Lauren's sick of Brian's bullshit.